You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. So we have the pleasure of having Dean LaRue, who is a senior lecturer for the Center for West European Studies and the EU Center at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Um, Mr. LaRue holds a master's degree in policy studies and a graduate certificate in global trade, transportation, and logistics from the University of Washington. Um, he's a member of the founding team for the West Coast Model European Union and the primary instructor for UW's European Union Policy and Simulation course, which sounds like that would be a fun course to take. <laughs> Dean, that sounds like I wanna take that. Um, and you're a former US Foreign Service Officer for the US Information Agency and International Project Manager for Amazon. So um, Dean, it's a pleasure to have you here today and I'll, I will turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Ryan, and thanks for the excellent lead-in. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to teach our European Union policy and simulation course. Uh, it's a little bit like a model UN, but obviously focused on the EU. And it brings with it a bunch of different elements. Uh, some of it is helping students who know literally nothing about the EU coming in get to the point where they're able to actually simulate being a leader of one of these countries. Uh, I had a kid from Spokane, you know, a um, fantastic student who at the end of the course said, you know, when I started this course, I didn't know that Danish was both a language and a pastry. Um, but now I'm, you know, negotiating for millions of liters worth of dairy subsidy um, to support, you know, my country's economy. And that's the kind of leap that I, I just love to be part of for students and for learning. Um, so my task here today, I think, is pretty straightforward. I'm here to give some basic background on the European Union and help everyone uh, sort of build a little common vocabulary. I imagine most of you are pretty familiar with the basics, but for people who haven't worked uh, heavily with the EU before, this will provide a good foundation. My goal here is to spend about 30 minutes running through the presentation and then leave the whole rest of the time for a little more detailed discussion, Q&A, and focus on your preferences and issues and, uh, and see if we can collaborate a little on building out teaching tools, if that works for everyone. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and roll forward, please. So it's a little hard sometimes to get our heads around the true scope and breadth of the European Union in the modern era. And um, one of the things I just have to note is we have to be very careful about where we're pulling our materials from. Things are changing so quickly. You'll see here, this is in fact a correct and current map showing EU candidates, uh, EU members, and potential EU candidate countries. But um, I very purposely left a year old map in on the next slide and uh it'll point you the wrong direction 
we have to really just acknowledge that things in and around the EU are changing so quickly right now that, uh, and I think somebody noted that in the questions uh, during Kyle's presentation, um, that even something from six months ago can be deeply misleading information. And even on the EU's own website, if we get past the sort of top level pages, there's lots of information that um, was perfectly in date six or eight months ago, but now is uh, a little out of sync and we just have to watch that. So when we're looking at the EU, um, the scope here is tremendous. 447 million people live within the EU today um, for current EU members. They have a uh, GDP of 17 trillion US dollars equivalent. So it's 5.8% of the world population, but about 18% of the world's GDP, uh, showing that these are indeed some of the wealthiest nations in the world. Um, but obviously that's not spread evenly. There are some very, very poor and still developing countries, uh, certainly by European standards, that are in the membership. And that will um, increase as the EU expands over time. Uh, today, 27 countries. Um, obviously, with the UK gone, you'll still see a lot of things that say 28, um, but 27 is the current correct number. I think the main thing I like to keep in mind about the EU is their commitment from their 1957 Treaty of Rome, the foundational treaty that uh, brought the original six countries together, that their focus is on an ever deeper union, an ever deeper union, working sometimes slowly, but very consistently towards a more comprehensive, a more complete, and a more effective union of the countries. And uh, really, I think quite remarkably, since the founding of the EU through to today, that's something that the member states, as they've grown from 6 to 12 to 15 to 25 to 27 to 28, back to 27, um, that they've really kept right in the center of their focus the whole way through. It's worth noting that six of the 11 members of the G10 economies, uh, which is somewhat challenging nomenclature, why are there 11 G10 companies or uh, countries? Hard to say. Um, but six of the 11 G10 members are EU members. Um, these really are powerful, global acting economies. And that's sometimes a little bit at odds with the EU's um, regional focus and becomes an interesting interaction, which uh, we won't really dive into deeply today, with their greater influence globally as a global economic actor that's really been growing over the last 20 or 30 years. The basis of the EU is this idea of consensus. There are some things that can get passed in the EU institutions, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, without 100% agreement. But foundationally, almost everything gets passed with 100% unanimous consensus. All 27 members have to actively say yes. Um, abstaining from a vote is effectively the same as a no. Um, and so it means sometimes that the EU ends up moving quite slowly as they negotiate and try to come up with something that all 27 countries are prepared to say yes to. But that when they then do say yes, 
it's a very powerful and unified decision that all the member states uh, by and large are prepared to stand behind. And um, particularly compared to American notions where we very often solve things with a 51% majority or a 50 and a half percent majority, this pressure towards uh, and an institutional commitment towards true unanimous consensus uh, gives a very different look to EU policy across the board. One of the fundamental commitments of the EU, uh, the four freedoms, the free movement of people, goods, capital, and services. Once you're an EU member, you're a fully integrated member of the single economy, and your people, your goods, your capital, and your services um, are free to move and do business and live and work anywhere in the union, uh, which is which is pretty amazing. Uh, there are obviously language barriers and professional licensing barriers and uh, some other things that that limit that a little bit. But legally, if uh, you're a citizen of Greece in the EU, you can go live and work in any one of the 27 EU countries uh, freely, and you can go and do business and sell and be part of the true unified market. Um, the underlying elements of being an EU member, and we'll talk about this a little more in a bit, are uh, the supremacy of the rule of law, a market economy, and civilian control of the military. Um, we sometimes kind of come up with other ways to imagine what it means to be European, but in an EU sense, those are the core elements. Uh, could we roll to the next slide, please? So here's a map that was absolutely valid six months ago um, and isn't anymore. And I think it's really worth sort of pointing out the changes and, and the elements here. Um, this highlights the UK as a recently departed member. And it's really interesting when you talk to people from the UK, they're very interested in talking about uh, post-Brexit life and what it means and what it looks like. Whereas increasingly I notice Europeans aren't interested in talking about it at all. They've kind of moved on. Um, and so for the last several years, I haven't been able to talk about the EU without really diving deeply into Brexit. But this is uh, the only time I'll mention it today. From the EU perspective, it's a done deal. Uh, the UK is gone. And while they're still a trading partner, they're just not uh, a central and focused part of EU policy in the way that they've been for the last few years. Um, this map highlights the European members that are not members of the EU, uh, Iceland, Norway, and Switzerland in particular. Um, all of whom who have considered joining the EU at various points, but have specifically elected to stay out, uh, largely to avoid EU influence on um, banking, oil, and fisheries, respectively, working through Switzerland, Norway, and Iceland. Um, and of course, the big thing that's changed just in recent months is that Ukraine and Moldova have been added as uh, official candidate members to the EU. Um, which is incredibly surprising to me that the EU was prepared to move so quickly on that. And it suggests some fundamental changes in EU governance and how the EU is working forward. Um, Georgia has also been added as a potential member. Um, and then it's worth noting the section of the Western Balkans, uh, Bosnia, Serbia, uh, North Macedonia, uh, Montenegro, are in various states of candidacy as well. We'll talk about that a little bit. 
Turkey is technically an EU candidate, uh, and they've been in active negotiations since about 2005, but the EU has frozen the progress of those negotiations uh, over Turkey's turn away from liberal democracy uh, and uh, increasing human rights challenges. Um, and that's a significant challenge of its own, uh, having Turkey not really in and not really out uh, creates a significant uh, significant policy challenge going forward. Could we get the next slide, please? So I'm just gonna take a couple of minutes and um, I really like the big question of what what is Europe? How do you know, you can roll ahead to the map, that's fine. Um, how do you know if something is European or not? There's a geographic answer. There's a cultural answer. Um, you know, do we define Europeans uh, just as people who sit around uh, drinking beer or wine late at night talking about uh, how terrible it is that the United States has a death penalty? That's, I mean, that's one approach, right? Um, geographically, the question is pretty clear. Europe is uh, everything on this this big peninsula west of the Ural Mountains. Um, we talk often about the divide between what some people call old Europe or Western, the most Western Europe, and the uh, Eastern Bloc nations, once part of the, the Soviet uh, Bloc, now released and much more leaning towards the West. Um, and as we're seeing in the news uh, daily right now, these countries that are on the border that feel European or geographically European, but are really contending between leaning towards the liberal uh, democratic economies of the EU, um, with a couple exceptions of EU countries that are backsliding a little bit, Hungary, a significant problem. Um, and being pulled more towards the autocratic ways of, of Russia, like Belarus. Um, how do you know if you're European? How do you know if you're part of the club? At one point, Morocco announced an intention to join the EU and submit an application, and they were told very clearly that they weren't European, that Morocco doesn't count. Um, but now we have Ukraine. Turkey as candidate members, and reaching all the way over to Georgia as a candidate member. Is that European? You know, um, do we draw the line between the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea? Do we draw the line at the Ural Mountains? There's no sort of clear and obvious answer here, but uh, the EU has also made it very clear that they are drawing a line and they are a European Union and not a larger uh, super regional entity. Uh, next slide, please. I also like just to take a moment, uh, I like maths, maps as much as uh, Ryan does, um, to remind everyone that while we are used to looking at the political map, this also just happens in a geographic universe. Um, and in some ways that's, that's relatively immutable. Uh, an area can change its governance, it can change its values, there can be migrations that in fact change its people. But the underlying geography and geology on which this occurs uh, isn't going to change. Greece can, can do many, many things, but they can't change being 
a nation that's sort of on a peninsula sticking out into the Mediterranean with uh, thousands of small islands. Italy, you know, will always be kind of long and narrow and uh, have north-south issues, whether it's made up of city-states or whether it's a single unified country as it, as it is today. Um, in many ways, the geography is defining. Uh, Belarus will always uh, be home to, or the area that is today Belarus, uh, will always be home to one of the world's uh, largest swamps, uh, climate change notwithstanding, um, and really change how they use their land and what areas of that uh, that section of the world can be used for agriculture and other kinds of, of uses. Um, the mountains setting off the Iberian Peninsula between uh, France and Spain is one of the most uh, solid borders um, in Europe over the last uh, 2,000 years. It's a natural boundary that is very difficult to get around. Um, and you'll see today that trains and uh, highways um, navigate those mountains in very specific ways that, that haven't really changed in the last thousand years uh, because they're the only way to go uh, without drilling directly through an entire mountain range, right? Uh, next slide, please. So the question of a unified Europe, um, Europe, the European peninsula under a single government, um, has been knocking around uh, since the time of the Roman Empire. And um, I think it's really interesting, you know, we're not going to go deeply into, into Rome here, obviously. Um, but if you look at some of the divisions in the line of the Western Empire, the Empire of the Romans versus the Eastern Empire, uh, run out of Constantinople, the Empire of the Greeks, um, you'll see divisions that look pretty familiar in terms of what we define as the West and what we define as the East today. Um, there's a fairly clear notion that somewhere um, between Italy and Greece, uh, things change and that there's a, a difference in the peoples, in the languages, and in their orientation uh, politically. Um, so there have been a couple times where most of the European peninsula has been under single governments, uh, governance under the Romans. Uh, if you are willing to accept the Holy Roman Empire as a unified entity, which it really wasn't, uh, then again under Napoleon, and then again um, after the Germans uh, took over most of Europe in uh, the 1930s and 40s. Um, but those haven't been long-lasting entities for the most part. And uh, this, this sort of tendency of the European countries or city-states or whatever is in place at the time to wish to go their own way is fairly powerful. Next slide, please. Um, so that brings us back to the European Union today. Uh, it's a little unfair to jump from uh, Rome to 2022 in one slide, but uh, here's, here's where we are. Um, can we roll to the next slide, please? So what is, what is the EU? What defines it and what makes it different? Um, and I find this is, this is a question that is very challenging for students uh, unless they've had 
a comparative politics course or something that really digs into it for students that are not familiar um, with even sometimes a parliamentary style of government and what it means, trying to figure out that the EU isn't a unified federal system like the US has, or something a little looser, um, like a trade union that's purely trade focused. It takes a little drilling down to get to what is the EU. Uh, the definition at the top of this slide, the EU is an ad hoc union with different sector specific levels of integration, uh, comes straight from the EU itself. Um, and I, I kind of love that sentence because in one sense, it's not very helpful. <clears throat> and another, it really tells us what they're trying to do here. Um, what the EU has done is said to its member countries, or its member countries have said to themselves, since they are really the, the, the primary entities, that these countries are going to come together and in areas where they can find agreement about how to handle things, they will hand over a piece of their sovereignty to the EU, one sector at a time, and create more integration in areas where there's agreement, while leaving alone areas that are either not appropriate for the EU to manage, um, or where agreement has not yet been found. So different sector-specific levels of integration points us towards areas where the EU and its member states have chosen to hand over their sovereignty and create a unified approach to a problem. And so agriculture, international trade, competition within the single market, fisheries are all areas where the sovereignty of its member states has been almost entirely handed over to the EU as an institution to manage. Uh, it's worth noting here that the EU is almost entirely a policy setting organization. Uh, the countries do the actual work of enforcement. If you violate an EU rule, you'll be brought up in your national court for the violation um, as a business or, or, what, or as a country. Uh, and only in cases where things have gotten uh, to a much higher level or there's a concern about the EU's right to regulate um, will you actually see an EU court? There, there are not sort of EU agriculture inspectors going out uh, to individual farms for the most part. Um, when we look at areas where some sovereignty has been handed over, but countries also still retain more control, homeland security, environment, although that's an increasing area of integration, uh, because so much environment covers so many areas, um, all the way down to uh, noise pollution, it's one that takes place at, at many levels at a time. Regional policy, research are areas of medium integration for EU countries. And uh, areas of relatively low integration, where countries are retaining almost their entire sovereignty, uh, we have defense, culture, education, health. Um, another description for what the EU is, is a transnational system of multi-level government. 
Um, can we go to the next slide, please? Um, and the idea with a transnational system, multi-level government, is that governance is held as close to the individual as possible, and only decisions that must be taken at a higher or more integrated level are delegated to the EU. Uh, I'm just going to talk very briefly about the EU institutions. Um, we're just going to kind of bounce through these. I assume most of you are at least broadly familiar. Um, but this area, I think, for teaching students often becomes a real challenge because the analogs to the system they know here in the U.S., or even if they're familiar with the parliamentary government system uh, from working with or around or living in other countries, um, the this just doesn't map very well. And that's because the EU has very intentionally tried to lay out, lay out a third way, neither a unified federal government nor a loose coalition of states cooperating on a single issue, but instead kind of a, a matrix um, with differing levels of integration per sector. So um, we have to be very careful about naming here. Um, a couple of these institutions have names that uh, to a student new to it will sound very similar. So the Council of the European Union, sometimes you'll hear the word concilium, the Latin uh, used here, um, is where the 28 member, oh, see, there's one I didn't update, the 27 uh, member states of the union um, are represented. And there's a six month rotating presidency where each country gets the presidency um, in sequence for six months. Um, and this is one of the features of EU governance that made a lot of sense when there were six or even 12 members, but becomes considerably more challenging at 27, um, where each country gets a six-month presidency every 13 years or so. Um, but uh, nobody's come up with a, a better solution or something else that makes sense. It's just important to remember here that this is where the countries, the governments of the member states are represented. And what's notable is um, that in the council, the ministers for a specific topic will meet in sequence. So the energy ministers will meet on energy topics, the defense ministers will meet on defense topics, finance ministers will meet on finance topics. And until 2009, the heads of government, the prime ministers or presidents for each country, also met under uh, the, the, uh, the roof of the council. But one of the things that was very clear was happening was that the prime minister's meeting tended to overwhelm the other meetings and most of the staff attention and everyone perhaps treated um, the heads of government meeting as if it was more important or the main the main show relative to energy ministers or finance ministers or environment ministers. And so if we roll to the next slide, after 2009, the heads of government uh, meeting got rolled out into its own institution called the European Council. So we now have the Council of the European Union, the institution that allows the ministers to meet, and then the European Council where the heads of government sit down. 
Um, and this is the EU's true policymaking and policy guidance uh, entity. It's where the rubber hits the road. Uh, it's where consensus is forged. Um, and it's notable that it has its own president. While the Council of the European Union has a rotating presidency held by the countries in turn, uh, the European Council has an appointed individual president who's there to be both a policy guidance uh, and a center for the meeting and a facilitator for the heads of government. Um, it's um, The nomenclature can be a little challenging for people meeting it the first time, but it makes sense. One of our big questions today is what's changed with um, the advent of uh, the Russian attack on Ukraine. Um, the EU began its life as a trade and economic entity, and um, it was intentionally built to be a slow and deliberative uh, and not particularly political entity. Given how much the EU controls today, that's not uh, a realistic pathway. And I have simply been blown away um, by the European Council's preparedness to step up, to step up to the challenge of Russian aggression um, and make some very aggressive policy decisions, uh, bringing uh, Ukraine and Moldova in as full candidate members uh, on such a short notice and reaching as far east as Georgia as a potential candidate. Um, these are things that under many circumstances you might expect to take uh, a decade or more. And the European Council rammed this through over the course of just a couple of months. Uh, huge, huge changes for a, a traditionally somewhat slow moving and deliberative uh, entity. Uh, next slide, please. So we'll just uh, bounce quickly off uh, the European Commission and European Parliament, and then we'll uh, move to a Q&A session. Um, every country provides uh, a commissioner and they get a portfolio of uh, areas that they're covering, whether it's um, energy or competition uh, or research. Um, the commissioners sit for five-year terms. Um, and uh, of course, there's a president of the commission also. Um, so we need to be very careful with our language when teaching and talking about presidents in the EU. We have a presidency for the Council of the European Union. We have a president of the European Council. We have a president of the European Commission. And uh, on the next slide, you'll see there's also a president of European Parliament. Um, it's uh, it's not a problem as long as we're cautious and we remind our students to, to be thoughtful about what we're doing. Here's just a list of the current slate of commissioners and uh, directorates general that they head to give you some idea of the scope of what the EU covers. Um, everything from, uh, you know, trade and taxation, to entrepreneurship, to climate action, uh, competition, defense industry. Um, the scope of action for the EU is uh, remarkably wide at the moment. Uh, next slide, please. Um, European Parliament has traditionally been a relatively quiet uh, member of the EU mix, but over the last 10 or 15 years, they've really been stepping forward. 
um, in what, what's called co-decision with the Council of the European Union. They have to approve uh, new regulations and actions uh, on the part of the EU, and they've been definitely grabbing uh, a little more of a front seat position in terms of guidance and oversight. Um, it's worth noting that while the title parliament um, inspires, I think, for Americans an assumption that it looks a lot like Congress, uh, and there are some ways that that's true, um, European Parliament has a couple of interesting limitations. In particular, they do not have the right of legislative initiative. They cannot directly propose legislation. Only the commission can propose legislation. And they don't have direct budgetary power in the way that the US Congress does. So in a, in a way, this can be sort of a false friend um, that it looks as if it should be very similar as we teach about it. And students will very often assume that they understand what's going on with European Parliament. Um, and that is rarely the case. Uh, the, the, the underlying story is a little more complex. Um, it's worth noting that they have a new uh, president, uh, only the third woman um, to be president of European Parliament, uh, and the first person from Malta. Traditionally, uh, presidents of European Parliament have come from larger member states, and uh, Malta is, in fact, um, one of the smallest. Uh, so it's a significant change in uh, sort of governance and diversity on the part of the EU there. Uh, next slide, please. Um, this is intended to sort of be an analog to the traditional um, three bodies of government uh, or three branches of government triangle that we see in American government classes. Um, if you want to dig into uh, the interaction between council, commission, and parliament, uh, we can talk about that more in Q&A, but that's mostly just here so you have it. Uh, next slide, please. The European Court of Justice uh, looks a lot like um, the U.S. Supreme Court in many ways. There's one judge from each member state, and they sit uh, in banks of one, three, five, seven, nine, et cetera, depending on what's going on there. Uh, it's just worth noting that that's an institution that exists. And perhaps for American students, it's the one institution that's a very close parallel to their expectations for the, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, We'll just bounce on forward. Next slide, please. So um, talking about growth of the EU, the last member to join was Croatia in 2013. Uh, obviously, the only member to ever leave is the UK, um, starting its process in 2019. Uh, these are the current candidates, um, Montenegro. And the dates I've given here are for when they've been in active negotiations, not uh, when they're uh, application was uh, submitted. Um, so until the Ukraine situation uh, came up, the assumption was that the EU's focus was going to be on integrating and uh, bringing the Western Balkan states in, um, Serbia, Albania, North Macedonia, um, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Kosovo has, is a, a real challenge. Um, the EU is dedicated to bringing in it as a member but five member states don't even acknowledge Kosovo uh, as a sovereign country, uh, which is why there's an asterisk at the bottom. Um, 
And the expectation was that this was going to be the, the centerpiece of EU foreign policy and action uh, for the next decade or so. Um, and that has simply been upturned uh, completely with uh, the situation in Ukraine. Next slide, please. So the EU has a tremendous amount on its plate um, for the next five or 10 years. And all of these issues, everything on this list <clears throat> is a significant, difficult, and challenging policy issue for its members to reach consensus on, remembering that we're trying to reach consensus at a 100% every nation agrees from Finland to Greece, from um, dedicated social democratic countries uh, like Denmark to countries that are leaning heavily towards uh, autocratic rule and moving away from uh, social democratic values like Hungary, um, reaching 100% consensus on security and defense issues, energy, uh, accession of the Western Balkan states to the EU, immigration and migration, uh, what to do about Turkey as um, a country that was invited to join but is now being in, clearly uh, held out as punishment for uh, some of their actions. What happens if you actually shut down Turkey's membership bid? Um, and then all of that, again, just gets a little bit overwhelmed by Ukraine and Moldova and you know the first uh, full-scale modern shooting war on Europe's borders uh, in modern history. Um, so tremendous challenges going forward. And um, we'll just, uh, it'll be fascinating to watch work and teach how the EU works through this. <clears throat> 